Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we will explore the role of social networking technology in this spring's federal election with the Toronto Star's own Antonia Zabrisius. And speaking of the election, we will speak with Quebec-based commentator Pierre Baudet about the rising fortunes of the NDP and the implications for the future of federal politics. And Stefan Christophe will bring us a special interview with Patrick Bond on the mobilization against the UN Climate Summit in Durban. First, the alert headlines for the week of April 28, 2011. According to the latest poll from Ecos Research, the NDP is rapidly outdistancing the Liberals and has whittled the Conservative lead to single digits, a level of support that could see Jack Layton win up to 100 seats on May 2nd. Under that scenario, the NDP would still come in second in seat count to the Conservatives, but the support of the third-place Liberals would give Mr. Layton a working majority in the House of Commons. The Ecos poll, conducted from April 22nd to April 24th, gave the Conservatives 33.7% support nationally, the NDP had 28% support, the Liberals 23.7%, the Green Party 7.2%, and the Bloc Québécois 6.2%. If those numbers held true on Election Day, it would be the worst showing in the history of the Liberal Party and the best result by far for the NDP. A 500-page dossier of potentially damaging remarks by Stephen Harper, prepared by the Conservatives, has hit the election campaign. The thick binder of material obtained by the Liberals is a treasure trove of controversial Harper quotes listed alphabetically by subject matter. It covers everything from abortion to Western alienation and dates as far back as the 1980s. The file includes the statement... I'm not ashamed to say that, in caucus, I have more pro-life MPs supporting me than supporting Stockwell Day. There's also his 1995 assertion that, quote, providing for the poor is a provincial, not a federal responsibility. A coalition of pro-choice groups says women's rights may be at risk if Stephen Harper's Conservatives win a majority government. The group said Canadians should look at the Conservatives' actions rather than Harper's reassurances the party wouldn't reopen the abortion debate, and pointed to comments last week by Conservative candidate Brad Trost, the incumbent in Saskatoon Humboldt. Trost said the government defunded Planned Parenthood because of pressure from groups opposing abortion. Carolyn Egan, a spokeswoman for the Ontario Coalition for Abortion Clinics and the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, said the most striking example was when the government decided last year not to provide funding under the G8 Maternal Health Program for groups that offer abortions to women in developing countries. Egan said the groups aren't asking people to vote strategically, but to vote for anyone other than a conservative candidate. The Department of National Defense says it's been told the unit price of the F-35 stealth fighter will be higher than the $75 million it planned for, but the military insisted it can still deliver the program on budget. 
The Pentagon, in a recent report to the U.S. Congress, outlined a laundry list of cost increases in the $382 billion U.S. development of the advanced fighter bomber. For weeks, the Harper government has insisted it will pay around $75 million for each F-35 and furiously rejected criticism from Kevin Page, the parliamentary budget officer, who estimated in March that the sticker price for the radar-evading plane would be more like $148 million apiece. The acknowledgement of the price change came as another American report suggested the cost of operating the jets could be billions of dollars more than expected. The whistleblowing website WikiLeaks has begun releasing thousands of secret documents from the U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay. The documents reveal the Bush and Obama administrations knowingly imprisoned more than 150 innocent men for years without charge. In dozens of cases, senior U.S. commanders were said to have concluded that there was no reason for the men to have been transferred to Guantanamo. Among the innocent prisoners were an 89-year-old Afghan villager and a 14-year-old boy who had been kidnapped. Some men were imprisoned at Guantanamo simply because they wore a certain model of Casio watches, which had been used as timers by al-Qaeda. The documents also revealed that the journalist Sami al-Hajj was held at Guantanamo for six years, partly in order to be interrogated about his employer, the Al Jazeera News Network. Syria's crackdown on anti-government protesters is intensifying. At least 20 people have died so far in the city of Daraa after thousands of troops backed with tanks opened fire on protesters. Syria has also sealed off its border with Jordan. On Sunday, at least 13 civilians were shot dead in the town of Jableh. And at least 112 people were killed in Syria last Friday in the deadliest day since anti-government protests began last month. The Wall Street Journal reports the Obama administration is drafting an executive order to freeze the assets of senior Syrian officials. Thousands of demonstrators gathered in the northern Iraqi city of Mosul on April 24th to protest any extension of U.S. military presence in the country. The protesters also denounced corruption and pressed for the release of detainees. The U.S. military is due to exit Iraq by December 31st, but secret talks have begun to allow the United States to stay longer. Demonstrators loyal to Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr have vowed to escalate military resistance if U.S. forces do not leave by year's end. French President Nicolas Sarkozy is due to meet Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi to discuss tensions over migrants from North Africa. Italy has angered France by granting visas to thousands of migrants, allowing them to travel across Europe's border-free zone. About 25,000 migrants have arrived in southern Italy so far this year. Rome has called for EU help with their care. Many of the migrants are Tunisian and want to join relatives in France. The unrest in North Africa has triggered a huge movement of migrants to Europe. A declaration signed by dozens of prominent Israeli academics, writers and artists welcoming a Palestinian state on the basis of Israel's 1967 borders was presented last Thursday at the site of Israel's 1948 Proclamation of Independence. As the well-known Israeli actress Hannah Maron, who lost a leg in a Palestinian attack, read out the declaration outside Tel Aviv's Independence Hall, protesters heckled the gathering, calling the participants traitors. 
the declaration, which was issued in expectation of moves to recognize a Palestinian state at the United Nations in September, asserts that the end of Israeli occupation of Palestinian territory is a fundamental condition for the liberation of both peoples, for the fulfillment of the Israeli Declaration of Independence, and for the independence of the State of Israel. The approximately 60 signatories to the document, titled The Declaration of Independence from the Occupation, included 17 recipients of the Israel Prize, the country's highest honor. Those are the alert headlines for the week of April 28, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of April 28, 2011. Election Day is Monday, May 2nd. If you haven't already, remember to exercise your democratic right and cast your ballot. To find out where, when, and how to vote, visit elections.ca. Canada and the European Union are negotiating a new Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, or CETA, which they hope to sign by the end of the year. But it would be more accurate to call it a privatization and deregulation pact. On April 29th, come to Canadian Communities Not for Sale to learn more about the threat CETA poses to Canadian communities and how you can get involved in stopping it. This free event features Maud Barlow, National Chairperson of the Council of Canadians, and Paul Moist, National President of the Canadian Union of Public Employees. It will take place at the Westin Hotel Calgary in the Ballroom and will begin at 7.30pm. Check out the Facebook event for more details. The Palestinian Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions National Committee has launched an international campaign to stop the Jewish National Fund and strip it of its official charity status. The JNF is instrumental in dispossessing indigenous Palestinians from their land, preventing Palestinian citizens of Israel from owning or leasing over 90% of land in Israel, and literally covering up ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages by planting trees on top of and around the land. To sign the JNF call for action and to find out about more opportunities to stop the JNF, go to www.stopthejnf.org. May Day is fast approaching, and this year will be the day before a federal election. In Ottawa, meet at Parliament Hill at 1 o'clock p.m. and join national and district labor organizations to demand an accountable government for deteriorating wages, working conditions, benefits, and pensions. A rally organized by No One Is Illegal Toronto will start at 1 o'clock p.m. with a march to follow. Meet at the corner of Queen and Jameson in Toronto to defend worker rights and demand status for all. In Winnipeg, meet at City Hall at 1 o'clock p.m. The Mayworks Festival of Working People and the Arts will take place this year from May 7th to May 15th at various locations in Toronto. Festival highlights include a labor history walking tour called Mapping Our Work on May 8th and the launch of the Stop Wage Theft campaign on May 13th. For more information about Mayworks events in your city, visit www. Mayworks.ca. The third conference on the impact of Canadian mining on local communities throughout the world is set to take place May 6th through 8th in Toronto. Mining Injustice, Confronting Corporate Impunity will feature several keynote speakers and workshops organized along themes of gendered violence, militarization, indigenous perspectives, labor rights, and environmental effects. The conference will be held at Sydney Smith Hall, room 2117 at the University of Toronto. 
For more information, go to the Mining Injustice Solidarity Network's website at solidarityresponse.net. Socialism 2011, Their Crisis, Our Solutions, is an international educational conference that will be taking place in Toronto at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, room 212, from May 19th to May 22nd. The conference will feature a variety of discussions and speakers, including Khaled Muammar, President of the Canadian Arab Federation, Barbara Jackman, a renowned Canadian lawyer, Jamie Gonzalez, Organization Secretary of the LUS, or the Socialist Unity League in Mexico. For more information, visit www.socialistaction-canada.blogspot.com. The Rebels Feminist Movement is inviting all young women between 14 and 35 years of age to the second Pan-Canadian Young Feminist Gathering. This gathering is a great opportunity for young women to learn about the varied understandings of feminism, to share struggles and discuss strategies of resistance, and create solidarity among young feminists in Canada. The gathering will be held in Winnipeg from May 20th to 23rd. For more information, go to rebels.org. The Ginger Project is a group of both NDP and non-NDP party members formed two years ago to reintroduce socialist ideals into the Canadian political landscape. On May 28th, this group will host a convention to establish a Socialist Party of Ontario. The Ginger Project encourages all those opposed to neoliberalism, racism, sexism, homophobia, and who support an egalitarian society based on principles of justice and fairness to attend. The convention will be held at the Bond Place Hotel in Toronto. For more information, go to thegingerproject.org. That's all for Around the Left for the week of April 28, 2011. Twitter, Facebook, and viral get-out-the-vote campaigns have added an interesting dimension to the federal election campaign of 2011. What overall effect is this new technology having on the voting process, and will democracy be the key beneficiary? To speak to this phenomenon, Alert is joined on the phone by Antonia Zerbisius. Antonia is a social commentator and writer for the Toronto Star. So thanks for joining us, Antonia. Thank you, Michael. So what, in your view, are the principal factors that are shaping this new technology that seems to be overcoming traditional youth apathy? Well, that's three questions in one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And one was a technological question that I can't answer because I don't understand the technology of it. I just know how it sort of affects things. Um, and the second question you asked me is how is uh, uh, shaping the youth um, vote, or shall we say uprising. So I'll get to that in a second. Um, in terms of Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, I have to say that I have, you know, in my previous incarnations at the Star, most of that time, 18 years, was as uh, a media or television columnist. And, you know, most of that coverage was focused on mainstream media, newspapers, and television. And I have never had so much fun as I am having during this federal election because you can get right into the ring and come out swinging and actually it's not a one-way street anymore. You don't have to wait for the national at 10 o'clock. You don't have to 
sit there through the weather or the entertainment reports on Newsworld or CBC News Network, as they're calling it now, you can just ignore everybody and everything and not only help inform uh, your community members, and by community members I mean your friends on Facebook, the people who follow you, and people who follow certain, as they say, hashtags or channels, uh, and the one that's being commonly used right now is ELXN41 for the 41st election. Um, so you can really shape perceptions out there. You can change the course, uh, assuming you have a f- enough followers and a great enough reach, uh, change the course of the conversation. And, for example, I mean, this was not intentional, really, I'm saying, on the surface. But at the beginning of the campaign, I wrote a very lengthy feature for the Toronto Star uh, outlining all the different ways that the Harper government has not been good for women, from funding cuts to maternal health care to all of that. And that story got a lot of traction uh, through Twitter and Facebook and gave rise to a hashtag called FemVote, um, which means that women are increasingly, uh, and women are, are, younger women are increasingly getting involved. And interestingly, I noticed that in all the, those youth mob, student mob vote videos coming out of the universities, every single one has been organized by a young woman, and the women dominate in the crowds. So is there a, com- you know, is, and, and then there's also that whole string of YouTube videos of it's over, Steve, we're breaking up, Steve, it's not you, it's me, or it's me, or it's not you, whatever. <laughs> and it's coming from women and young women. So if I see any tendency in terms of the youth vote, it is coming from young women because they feel disenfranchised as youth and they are angry as women. Okay, so you're... You seem to be. I was going to ask if there's anything inherent about these technologies that that would compel democratic participation. And and what I'm hearing from you is the the instantaneous nature of it and the ability of people to interact as opposed to just wait for the the evening news. Well, there's the instantaneous. There's the interaction. Uh, there's the back and forth because uh, you don't just interact with the news organizations and the journalists and the politicians because some of them do interact with, uh, with readers or viewers, uh, not that many. David Aiken from Sun Media, uh, Katie, um, Katie O'Malley from CBC interacts somewhat, uh, Susan Delacorte of the Toronto Star interacts, and I interact. So there's, no, there's a little bit of interaction from journalists. There's a little bit of interaction from politicians. But I think that the real thing that's going on is the feeling that you are not just standing there watching the parade go by, Hmm. that you can become part of the parade. And uh, not only is that empowering, it's fun. You know, I I was telling some, on Easter Sunday, I was telling my family, you know, because they mock me for being on social media all the time, and I said, I feel like I'm playing this fantastic video game that could influence what happens in this country. And it's really... It really is the most apt description I can think of. Antonio, is there a a, a political party that uh, is benefiting from this, as far as you could tell? I sus- yes, absolutely. Uh, no, let me rephrase, reframe that. Uh, it's it, it's the one political party that is not benefiting from it, um, and that is the uh, the conservatives. 
And that is because, you know, the conservatives have the upper hand, right? They're, they've got the, the instruments of power. They've got the money. They've got the, the you know, they come from a position of power and authority. And they're the ones who have to be, you know, in the minds of many, many, many voters, knocked off, you know, the top of the mountain kind of thing. So because people who support the liberals or the NDP or the Green or the Bloc don't come from that top of the mountain thing, like they're trying to scale that hill and take that hill, um, they're benefiting the most from it because they are using the tools most often. So even if, and I have, uh, con- even if you conduct extensive searches on YouTube and elsewhere looking for anything that's pro-Harper that isn't released by the party itself, you are going to have a very hard time finding anything, whereas there is an explosion of creative talent uh, being directed at toppling the conservative government. What you're saying is very interesting because Stephen Harper has become quite renowned for his being a, a, a quote-unquote control freak. <laughs> or at least that's his reputation, right? Right. And and it seems as if this technology, if I'm hearing you correctly, kind of defies the ability to 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 be controlled. No one can control it. Well, it defies um, it defies authority. Period. Right. It doesn't just defy um, you know party politics. It also defies media. Um, there there is no more control. You cannot. The mainstream media cannot set the agenda anymore. In fact, they are following the agenda. I am getting stories off Twitter. For example, there was this uh, little scandal. Uh, I don't know if it reached out your way in Winnipeg, but there was this little scandal um, in uh, Toronto over the weekend um, about uh, uh, a liberal candidate um, removing Green Party flyers from uh, the mailboxes of voters in his writing and substituting the flyers with liberal flyers. I picked that off. Twitter, who somebody who was just an ordinary person, noticed it on the street, started taking pictures, posted it on Tumblr. Next thing you know, three days later, it's in the Toronto Star. Hmm. Now, I, that gets to a, another question. As a, as a journalist, you're aware of how the Internet has brought more information to the fingertips of the populace, but it's also enabled the spreading of misinformation and improperly sourced facts. So I, I'm wondering if you see a comparable downside to this social networking, these social networking tools where, where elections are concerned. Yeah, there, well, so far, to my knowledge, there hasn't been anything like that in terms of the election. You know, there's uh-huh. been a few... Uh, incidents in which uh, uh, you know the celebrities have been declared dead when they aren't dead. Um, but the the wonderful thing about this sort of this technology is that it's correcting, it's crowd correcting. So if you were to tweet something that was wrong, and I look at it and I go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Are you kidding? You know, I would check it out, mm. and I, I wouldn't be the only one checking it out. And there would be some people who would mindlessly retweet it or repeat it or post it on their Facebook or whatever. Um, but then there would be a lot of other people who would go, you know what, I'm going to check this out. So eventually it becomes self-correcting. Um, and, and that can be minutes uh, or even an hour or so. I've, I've posted mistaken tweets about various subjects, and I've gone back to correct them because next thing I knew, um, not, uh, I'm not talking about the election. I'm talking about things that are not that critical. 
people come back at me and go, no, that's wrong. And next thing I know, I'm saying, oh, sorry about that last tweet. My bad. I got it wrong. It should be like this. You know, and, and I'm going to take down that tweet. So please be aware. Well, Antonio, we're uh, at the end of our time. I, I want to thank you for uh, sharing those uh, rather profound thoughts about us as we uh, are uh, entering the final uh, lap of this election. Oh, this weekend's going to be wild. I can hardly wait. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll be looking forward to uh, your tweets and uh, blogs and whatnot. Okay. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. And uh, that was Antonia Zerbesius. She is a social commentator and writer for the Toronto Star. There has been widespread disbelief at the rise of the NDP as a political force in Quebec. Is it a temporary blip or a historical turning point? For his insight into these questions, Alert turns to Pierre Baudet, founder of Quebec NGO Alternative and editor of the Nouveau Cahier du Socialisme. Pierre Baudet, what's behind the surprising and unprecedented NDP surge in Quebec? Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of reasons, uh, good reasons and uh, not so good reasons. Uh, on the positive side, uh, there's definitely here a surge to the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was uh, noticeable uh, for the last few months, mostly around Quebec Solidaire and the uh, capacity of that uh, political formation and social movements to present an, an alternative. So the urban rumor, so to speak, is that a lot of these uh, Quebec Solidaire supporters are going to the NDP and uh, a lot also from uh, social movements and whatnot. I think um, the NDP message was was smooth, was uh, sympathetic, was positive, and um, it was attractive to that kind of uh, of population here that is not so small. Because if you look at the total numbers, the Bloc and the NDP are way ahead of the Conservatives and the Liberals, and uh, the Bloc and NDP have a quite similar program. Uh, it's just that the NDP at this point might appear new and uh, more attractive, and the bloc is a bit, uh, you know, uh, behind. So I feel that uh, from a left uh, si- uh, left point of view, this is positive. Mm. Now there's a negative side because uh, NDP votes will neutralize bloc votes, and uh, such as the. Uh, lousy electoral system in Canada, winner takes all. First past the post. Is what so it means that in many ridings where the bloc is ahead, uh, they might lose to the NDP, leaving the Liberals and the uh, Conservatives to squeeze in. It's exactly that situation in my riding, which is called Ansic, north of Montreal. And for the last two mandates, it was a progressive uh, bloc woman uh, she got it uh, with a few hundred votes of majority. And so I'm afraid that uh, if uh, some of these voters go to NDP, uh, you know, the liberal, in, in this case, it's the liberal rather than the conservative, mm-hmm. uh, who will win. And so this is the situation in Quebec where many uh, writings are at stake. And um, it might 
it's a paradox, but uh, you know it comes from the system we have. It's a paradox, but the the right wing uh, might be benefiting, and so mm-hmm. that's why you hear a lot of the conservative uh, commentators and experts on the media. I mean, people who have been traditionally associated with the conservative party or the liberal party are very now enamored with the NDP. Okay, it's you... hypocritical. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, their calculation is that ah. Finally, the block that can be beaten. Well, that that brings up an interesting point. If uh, does this signal the the beginning of the end of the block, or are we talking a? Is this a sort of like a temporary love affair, or is this something that could endure? Or are we looking at a more fundamental changing of the political landscape in Quebec? Well, it's a bit uh, you know there are many interpretations. My interpretation is that uh, no, uh, the block and the PQ, uh, they are uh, twins, uh, are there to remain. Um, they are remaining, but are becoming relatively weaker. And at the provincial level, uh, Quebec Solidaire is on the rise, the PQ is stagnating, and I think it reflects uh, the situation. But to say that uh, the PQ and the bloc will uh, you know, go down and down, I think it's very premature for many reasons. Uh, first of all, as I said, I don't, personally, I don't believe that uh, the NDP is ready to uh, to crack the system in a big-time way. And so we will have a right-wing government. And what will it do, this right-wing government? It will uh, be very threatening and whatnot. The bloc uh, has been historically capable of opposing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are like a, you know, a grain of, of sun in, in, the, in the gear. Uh, they are not uh, proposing, but they are opposing quite effectively. Okay, People then- know that. Well, what about the liberals then? I mean, they, they seem to be... The have, liberals are out. They're the liberals out. have been losing to the right, to the conservative, of course. They've been losing to the left, to the NDP. The liberals are in disarray. And the Liberal Party in Quebec, the Federal Liberal Party in Quebec, is split between two factions fighting one another. And on the one side, you have the old Trudeauist uh, hardliner, the anti-nationalist... Uh, I call that I call them the obsessive one, and then you have a more toned down, modernized version. So they're really in the ropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been losing also with uh, immigrant communities, just the same like everywhere else in Canada, where the immigrants who used to be uh, almost uh, you know clients of the Liberal Party now are uh, much more diversified politically. They have not gained with the, the francophones. They have. With the Anglophones, I think that's what remains with the Liberal Party in Quebec. Uh, you know, 15% of the population will vote for the Liberal until death. Well, the, the hardliners, I guess you might say. But our, our impression out here in the West that is that the, uh, the, the downfall of the Liberals was largely triggered by the sponsorship scandal, and yet they brought in Ignatieff. And, uh, it's, he, more, it's more structural it's more than, profound that. than it, that. It was, it was aggravated by the by the sponsorship scandal. But if you look at uh, evolution and the numbers over the last uh, 20 years, you see you see a, a decline. But uh, it, it became dramatic with the sponsorship. I see the sponsorship as the, as the trigger, not as the fundamental cause. Okay. Because the liberals were caught between their sort of centrist position, semi-Keynesian tradition on the one hand, and 
On the other hand, the policies that they imposed under Chrétien and Paul Martin, which were very similar to the Conservatives. So ordinary working people, middle class, as we call it in this country, uh, started to wonder what, what's, what's, what's for us. So uh, and elites have turned very much to the Conservatives. So they've been squeezed on both sides. It's a, it's a general phenomenon that you can observe in many capitalist countries where the centrist parties are on the decline. So does that mean that the... So you don't see the Liberals recovering? Well, never say never. <laughs> but uh, at this point, it would be a, a, big, a big surprise. Uh, if there is a collapse... Um, by the way, I don't know if that was discussed in Canada, but I think uh, there might be another idea uh, up in the air, which would, could be a rapprochement between the NDP and the Liberals to recreate a sort of center, mildly, very mildly left formation. Um, it's not unthinkable because um, the Liberals uh, will admit that they're going to, they're going to go down, and the NDP will. I consider that they're not never going to be, to be able to win an election without enlarging their base. So I'm speculating here, but I wouldn't be surprised of such a twist. Uh, it depends, of course, on the results in May 2. If the NDP uh, makes makes it so big, um, it might be in a, in a better position to say we are the alternative. So if the... I mean, as far as Quebec is concerned, uh, would the should the NDP be, if they wish to have staying power, should they just try to take over the middle ground ceded by the Liberals? Or this, uh, I think what you're talking about, a merger with the Liberals, yeah. would that uh, give them the, the clout they need to, to potentially... A merge or a very strong coalition. But uh, careful, Quebec is not the thing. Mm. I feel that the search for the NDP is, uh, is fragile here. It's more by default. Right by a sort of uh, distanciation from what is what are considered the traditional parties, including the bloc, it remains to be seen how uh, stable it will be, because uh, the uh, the nationalist appeal is not just a spin here; it is based uh, on uh, historical and structural reasons, and it will come back. And Jack Layton in this campaign has been very silent on this. I think it was his, his choice, his policy, to remain silent. But it will come back like a vengeance, meaning uh, the, uh, some of the economic and political battle lines between the federal government and the Quebec uh, nation and the Quebec state, not, on, not just the bloc and not just the, the Parti Québécois. You have many, many issues. You have a total unanimity in Quebec against the uh, attempts by the federal government to uh, push uh, Quebec around. And so we will see what Jack will be able to do uh, on these issues. He has been silent on this. Okay. Well, Pierre Baudet, I want to thank you very much for helping bring some fresh insights into this uh, bizarre dynamic that's uh, unraveling over the course of this election. So th thank you very much for joining us on Alert. Thank you. And that was Pierre Baudet. He is the founder of Quebec NGO, the Quebec NGO Alternative, and editor of the Nouveau Cahier du Socialisme. In the following interview, recorded on the occasion of the recent Cochabamba Plus One Climate Conference in Montreal, 
Stefan Kristoff, an organizer with Tadamon, asked Patrick Bond, an academic with the Center for Civil Society at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, about the upcoming UN Climate Conference in Durban, South Africa, and to put that international gathering in the context of previous summits on climate and the economy. One of the uh, things we, we always have to do is, is reality check and ask whether the group that's going to come, including the Canadian government, uh, has any interest or capacity to solve this huge problem given the terribly adverse balance of forces, not just that it's a Tory government with a lot of climate denialism and uh, is, is kind of following the lead of the United States that's just absolutely you know, sort of gridlocked in, in legislative terms and is so heavily influenced by projects like tar sands and, and, and shale gas and all the rest. But um, actually there's a bigger problem, I think, Stefan, that the world elites, since meeting in the city, I think really in 1987 in the Montreal Protocol uh, that dealt with chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, that are uh, increasing the size of the ozone hole. And so having finally at that point said, okay, we'll put a cap on that and prevent these CFCs starting in 1996, they were banned. That was really the last time, I think, uh, that these global elites have done anything to solve a global problem properly. And the major challenges of uh, the period since, the, the neoliberalism and neoconservatism uh, ideologically that have come up in the 90s and 2000s, the uh, attempts to change the Bretton Woods institutions, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, pretty much no change there. World Trade Organization is, you know, in a cul-de-sac, so it's going nowhere. The um, uh, UN Security Council and United Nations processes are, are stuck and, and aid is not flowing. And you come to, um, you know, geopolitics and the wars that are still raging in uh, Central Asia and the Middle East and now North Africa. You know, these are big, big problems that uh, these elites have no capacity to deal with. And the climate is just the, the latest in that. And since Kyoto, where they had a ridiculous idea to solve the problem with the market, with the carbon trading, and they had very limited objectives, 5% cuts by, by 2012 from 1990 levels, we really have seen our world elites just absolutely fail to come properly to uh, any of these tables and solve the problems. So let's say Durban will be con a continuation. Copenhagen was a, more of a disaster for them for public relations reasons. And then in uh, Cancun, they were able to pretend that they are back on track was we know they sort of are building a, a castle in the sky of market solutions and on quicksand the markets are actually absolutely failing the, the European carbon market is was absolutely um, stymied by uh, hacking and, and theft you know a couple of three months ago was actually shut down and uh, the U U.S. has gone nowhere California might get up and running but there's a lawsuit that just was filed by environmental justice activists in San Francisco to stop that and Nowhere else really can we find, I mean, Montreal's pathetic little market. There's nothing really going on uh, to give any sense that the biggest problem we'll ever face, I think, the, the climate problem in our lifetimes is going to be solved through their ideal solution, a carbon market. And it's such a tragedy, I must just say, uh, that the Greens and the other, the NDP and the, you know, all of the opposition parties in this country are all for carbon trading. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. It just makes uh, one think that uh, what we'd normally expect from sort of rational middle-class Canadian elites, you know, with leadership like uh, maybe Stephen Lewis used to provide on the AIDS battle, uh, is actually not there. It's, it's, it, they're definitely Canadians part of the problem. And that maybe brings me to Durban because I think if 
Canadians mm -hmm. come with Washington, with Obama's people and the World Bank and the EU. You know, Connie uh, Hedegaard's uh, obviously shown as a Danish leader. She can't do anything on, on climate. And then the Japanese and the Russians have just said they're pulling out of Kyoto. We're really looking at the major block uh, of, of northern uh, negotiators totally sabotaging any possibility. And that, in turn, means for activists a pretty easy argument that these guys just shouldn't come. You know, if there's going to be a conference of the party 17, COP 17, and the Canadians come, and the Yankees, and the uh, Russians, and the Japanese, and the Europeans, well, it'll just be a conference of polluters. It's not going to actually solve the problem. So one of the arguments then, and I think we were getting a sense of this in the World Social Forum when we last talked, is that uh, the Canadian government should stay home, and the Canadian people who care about the climate have a responsibility to, to begin to ask, well, what are these delegates doing in our name? And uh, there's certainly enough evidence from the Bangkok uh, preparatory meeting in early April, and there will be in the June meeting of, in, in Bonn, that Canadian delegates are, are absolutely uh, uh, saboteurs and just shouldn't be allowed to come to Durban. And that might mean uh, people using the old spirit, uh, spirit of Mahatma Gandhi and sit-ins and satyagraha and sort of civil disobedience to prevent that. And uh, I think that's going to be the kind of message that's going to reverberate around the world. Christoph then asked Bond to comment on his expectations going into the Durban conference. The debate now in Durban that I've just come from, in fact, is is the extent to which um, we can build a big united movement to uh, you know to link the traditional uh, maybe centrist NGOs that do work on environment like WWF and some of those groups in the Climate Action Network, which is uh, you know more the establishment insider negotiating who are often in favor of carbon trading and market sort of supposed solutions on the one hand, and with the CJ, the climate justice movements of uh, South Africa. We have a climate justice uh, now in South Africa that's disparate, has in the three different uh, big cities, Durban, uh, the second biggest, Joburg the biggest, Cape Town third, you know, very strong activists, probably about 25, 30 in each that have built up different projects and different protests uh, that suggest we, we can probably host something quite useful if we put all of our efforts together, including on December 3rd, a big march, sort of a united march with you know, unifying demands. Um, and that means that our alternative summit space, which we anticipate, it's not 100%, but I anticipate it will be at the Durban University of Technology, whose chancellor, incidentally, is actually the granddaughter of of Mahatma Gandhi, her name Ella Gandhi, and as we speak today, she just held a assault march with several thousand people, sort of uh, recreating that spirit of of Gandhi. And and I think that's such a graha center that she has, and a, uh, the the spirit there of commitment to civil disobedience. We'll see some some evidence of then in Durban, and I think that's going to be a really good space. It's much closer to the ICC, the International Conference Center, the Convention Center, uh, than uh, some of the other venues. And as a result, we'll probably get also a lot of flow through of ordinary people from Durban. It's a very right next to the big transport center. And I think actually it'll be a terrific space for a week and a half or two Starting in November 28th, there may be some other, you know, big teach-ins, and, and of course we're doing climate camps leading up to that. So I do expect a good uh, alternative summit space. Uh, it might be called a climate in Daba. I think Klima Forum is a sort of spirit from uh, Copenhagen's effort, but we'll have a South African name in Daba, I suspect. And I think that'll be um, an all-in kind of thing, and the public certainly very. Uh, open and maybe some good debates between the different uh, ideological positions while we get ourselves educated about what, what it is. Uh, my own hope is climate justice comes out very strongly and with a very strong militant march. Uh, and it may be a march. Uh, I 
think we should certainly march uh, away from this international convention center where I don't think anything useful will happen and in disgust basically say this is the uh, this is the elites failing yet again we've actually now got to do something more serious more serious climate politics means we have to go to the sites of huge emissions and in Durban that's going to be the big petrochemical complex the biggest set of oil refineries south of the Niger Delta plus the airport plus you know the dozens of other sites of potential. We have, a, for example, a big clean development mechanism. And virtually all the people that are part of that hosting committee, a, gr- a group called a C-17, 17 people from different organizations, I think, are going to be uh, very strongly on board for finding sites where we really put our bodies on the line and say that, uh, like we've seen in uh, Alberta and uh, with the tar sands and in Quebec with the fights against uh, shale gas, we really need uh, the grassroots to take the lead because the world elites are making a terrible mess. We just heard Patrick Bond of the University of KwaZulu-Natal speaking to Stefan Christoph on the background to the upcoming climate conference in Durban. This is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik. And on this week's show, a retrospective of a very, very fine political folk artist by the name of Hazel Dickens. Some of you may have seen her in the movie Maidawan, which was about the mine struggle in West Virginia in the 20s. Every time they needed somebody to come up and sing a really sorrowful tune, they get Hazel to do it. She was one of the most absolutely finest political thinkers that I ever met out of, the, out of the southern mountains. She was a great singer of traditional songs, and she was a great singer of minor songs. And she sang about the conflicts that people had in the south and the mountain, the mountain people had. When we lost Hazel last week, a real great part of the folk community died. She's a wonderful... So for those of you who have never heard her, you're about to have a real treat and about to be introduced to a great artist. And for those of you who knew Hazel, sorry about that, folks, but here she is. But through the wonderful media recordings, we'll have Hazel forever. Here she is with Fire in the Hole. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingle their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow another time or lift another finger tell the union we have won stand up boys let the bosses know turn your buckets over turn your lanterns low there's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole I'll bet this cold will kill me for my working days is through In a hole that's dark and dirty and early grave confined I plan to make a union for the ones I leave behind Stand up, boys, let the bosses know Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low Far in her hearts and far in her soul But there ain't gonna be no far in the hole There ain't gonna be no far in the hole
stars one Goodbye to Buckeye, White Sycamore I'm leaving you behind I've been a coal miner all my life Laying down track in the hole Got a back like an ironwood bent by the wind Blood veins as blue as the coal Blood veins as blue as the coal Well, somebody said that's a strange tattoo You have on the side of your head Said that's a blue mark left by the cold Little more than I'd have been dead I like the rumble, I like the dark blood I like the blue of the sleigh But it's gone down the new road Looking for a job Traveling and looking I hate Traveling and looking I hate Two written by Billy Ed Wheeler, and before that, Fire in the Hole, all sung by the late, great Hazel Dickens. Think about Hazel, that she connected in both as a, as a country singer, and an old-time singer, and a mountain singer, and she really had all those kind of different kinds of skills. But the thing that really characterized her was her real affinity for, dare I use the word, proletarian, for proletarian art. She was absolutely connected to the society that she was part of through the good times and the bad times. Here again is Hazel Dickens with Aragon Mill. The chimney so tall that says Aragon Mill, but there's no smoke at all coming out of the stack for the mill. Has
cry of the wind as it blows through the town. Weave and spin, weave and spin. There's no children at all in the narrow. Since the loons have all gone, it's so quiet I can't sleep. Now I'm too old to change, and I'm too young to die. And there's no place to go for my old man and I. And the Is the cry of the wind as it blows through the town? Weave and spin, weave and spin. Yes, the only sound I hear is the cry of the wind as it blows through the town. Weave and spin. Yes, the only sound I hear is the cry of the wind as it blows through the town. Weave and spin, weave and spin. Tonight we stand. Divided we fall For every dime they give us A battle must be fought So working people use your power The key to liberty Don't support that rich man's style of luxury And there ain't no way they can ever keep us down Oh no, ain't no way they can ever keep us down We won't be bought, we won't be sold To be treated right, well that's our goal And there ain't no way We've been shot, we've been jailed, Lord, it's a sin Women and little children stood right by the men Got a union contract that keeps the worker free And I'll never shoot that union out of me They'll never shoot that union out of me, oh no Never shoot that union out of me Got a contract in her hand signed by the blood of honest men And they'll never shoot that union out of me 
That was Hazel Dickens, the late Hazel Dickens, with They'll Never Keep Us Down and before that, Aragon Mill. What a loss to folk music, what a loss to the class struggle. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. Please join us next week for our final show of the season, which will feature a review of the past federal election by members of the Canadian Dimension Collective, including Leo Panich, David McNally, Andrea Levy, Judy Rebick, Marie Dobbin, and James Laxer, among others. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonick. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left, prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. Est-ce que ça va?